0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome. If you could all please open up your Bibles or devices to John 4, verses 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am, speak to who, I, who speak to you am he. This is the word of God. Thanks, Marcelo, for reading to us.
1: And uh, it's good to see all of you. If, you're, if you happen to be new here at uh, New Hope, then uh, welcome. It's great to have you especially. And I hope you're able to hang out afterwards a little bit and uh, maybe get to know some of the folks here at New Hope if you're new and uh, allow us the opportunity to get to know you as well. Every Sunday, this church gathers in this building to worship. We start with a call to worship, and then the worship team comes up here, and and we sing songs of worship. And then when I get up here, I often say something about how great it is to be here with you to worship together. We use that word a lot, worship. What does it mean? And, And why do we use it so much? These are questions worth thinking about. And and here's why, here's one reason at least why it's worth thinking about. Because you were made by God to worship. You are by nature a worshiper. It's hardwired into you. David Foster Wallace was a novelist. He, He wrote a lot of fantastic stuff in the 80s through the early 2000s. And he said these words famously, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. You hear that? There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Foster Wallace understood something fundamental about humanity. He knew that we were all worshipers. And as we're going to see in in just a little while, worship isn't just something that we do when we stand here in this place and, and the band stands up here and plays and we read lyrics up on that wall. No, we all worship constantly. And we always have. The question is what or who will we worship? Will you waste your days praising and adoring people and things? Or will you worship the God that you were made for? Today we're coming back to this scene that we started looking at last week. It's a conversation between Jesus Christ and a woman that he just met next to a well in a place called Samaria. Let me show you this, uh, this map one more time. I showed it to you last week. It shows you where Samaria is in relation to some other regions in, uh, in the Middle East. Um, in the 8th century BC, that area labeled Samaria there, it was at one point completely populated by Jewish people, just like the region to the south, Judea, and the region to the north, Galilee. It was all Jewish territory. But in the 8th century B.C. it was invaded by an Assyrian kingdom. And that invading kingdom, they they removed most of the Jewish people from that region. Not all of them, but most of them. And what they did was they brought in people from other nations to populate that region. This was strategic. Invading armies would sometimes do this. Why would they do this? They'd they'd take out most of the people that were native to a land, they'd bring in new people to mix with those who stayed behind. The plan was to destroy the culture through the mixing of cultures to kind of get rid of what was there originally. In any case, it worked. And what happened over time is that this region of Samaria was no longer really Jewish anymore. Instead, it was occupied by these people that the Jews looked at as half-breeds. The Jews looked down on them. They rejected them. They were considered to be, the Samaritans where they were considered to be ethnically unpure. They were culturally unpure. They were religiously unpure because what had happened there is not only did ethnicities mix, which as a 21st century, at least to me, ethnicities mixing sounds awesome. It sounds beautiful. It sounds wonderful. Not so much to the Jewish people at that time. They hated what had happened in Samaria. But not only had cultures mixed, but religions had mixed too. And this was really, really problematic. For instance, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. That was was a clear, clear departure from Judaism, which embraced the whole of the Old Testament as God's word. In fact, in about 400 BC, the people who lived in Samaria, they built their own temple on a place called Mount Gerizim, which was not far from where Jesus was having this conversation with this woman. He built their own temple, and they said, we're not going to go to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple that's there. We're going to worship God in our own temple. Eventually, Jewish armies destroyed that temple in Mount Gerizim. So so you see, I mean, we looked at this last week, but there were some deeply-seated problems between Jews and Samaritans. There was real hatred. They didn't eat together. They didn't worship together. And yet, none of that stops Jesus from talking to the Samaritan woman. we meet next to this well in John 4 Jesus and his disciples they're traveling through Samaria up to Galilee from Judea straight north up to Galilee and Jesus meets this woman because he's exhausted and he's parched and he stops at this well and this woman walks to the well and he asks her for a drink and that's how this life-changing conversation begins so last week, what we did is we looked at the first 18 verses of this conversation on how Jesus, we saw how Jesus offers this woman what he calls living water to quench her spiritual thirst. Even though he just met her, he knows her completely. He knows her story before she tells him. It's amazing, it's miraculous. But Jesus wants her to know him as well. He wants her to see who he is. And he wants her to see that that regardless of her people's messy history, and regardless of her own messy past, and regardless of her sinful life, if she will believe in him, then she will be freed from the guilt and the shame that she carries around with her. That, That she can have new life. In the verses we're looking at today, we're going to look at the the middle part of this conversation. Jesus tells this woman more about herself and more about himself. So here are the two points for today that we're going to see. One is this, we are all worshipers. And number two, Jesus makes us worshipers of the true God. We're all worshipers. Jesus makes us worshipers of the real God. Let's let's look at verse 16 of John 4. It says there, Jesus said to this woman who he just met, go call your husband and and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, that is you plural, the Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So so what happens here is this woman is shocked that Jesus knows her backstory. He knows about these previous marriages and about her present living arrangements. She's impressed by that, but I think she's also made rather uncomfortable by it. What Jesus says is awkward. So what she does is she switches the subject of the conversation altogether. She starts talking about the topic of worship. And this is a controversial topic because remember I said the Samaritans and the Jews disagreed on where to worship. The Samaritans were still worshiping on Mount Gerizim. Even though their temple had been destroyed, they still continued to worship there. Jesus and Jews like him would have worshiped in Jerusalem, the temple, that very temple that Jesus visited back in John chapter 2. So she's raising some really sticky topics here, which, which must have taken some guts, really, especially if she believes that this man, Jesus, is a prophet, a man of God, She's willing to broach this subject? She's got guts. Jesus rolls with the conversation. He doesn't stop her and say, no, 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 let's not talk about worship at all. Let's go back to this living arrangement I just mentioned. Let's go back to your backstory. Tell me about these relationships. No, instead he says, you want to talk about worship? Let's do that. And I believe the reason he's willing to talk about worship with her is because he sees that it's something that's really, really important to talk about. It's important for all of us because worship is central to what it means to be human. You and I were made to worship God. That that means, what does it mean? Does it mean that we were made to go to church on Sundays? It means much more than that. It means that we were made to live for God. We were made to see him as supremely good and supremely valuable, the most valuable thing. We were made to serve him. We were made to get our identity and our sense of self-worth from him. We were meant to be awed by him. And all of that is wrapped up in this little word, worship. In fact, the word worship comes from an old English word, worthship. Worth, it's hard to pronounce, worth What does it mean? I mean, think about the way it's, it's, it's the, that word is built. worth It means that we were made to see God as worthy, as having infinite worth. We were made to see God as deserving, not just deserving of a little time on Sunday morning, but deserving of our lives. We were made to see him as worthy to be the focus of our desires. We were made for that. Worship means all of that. Worship involves looking at God and acknowledging, recognizing how awesome he is, observing God and what he tells us about himself, what he reveals to us about himself, and responding by recognizing that he is great. He is the best. He's sovereign. That's all-powerful. He's holy. He's also compassionate, merciful, He's so unlike us, and yet at the same time, he's willing to come near to us and to know us and to allow us to know him. There's this passage in Psalm 29 that I think captures worship, at least some aspect of worship beautifully. I'm going to read it to you. You don't even have to look it up. It's short. In Psalm 29, verse 2, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Give God the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So what is this saying? It says, observe who God is. And the rest of the psalm goes on to talk about this one particular, talks about his strength. So it's observe God's strength, observe his holiness, and give him the glory, treat him the way he deserves to be treated. Other psalms talk about other aspects of God's character, other attributes of God besides strength. His faithfulness. His mercy. His complete and total honesty. His love. Worship is a response to who God is. And we were made to live doing that. But sin ruined it. Sin makes us worshipers of other things, like ourselves. In fact, many of us often think of sin this way. If you had to define sin, how would you define it? Many of us think of it as breaking God's rules, breaking God's commandments. And there's truth in that. There's no doubt. But here's another way for us to think about sin. Sin is worshiping anything other than God. And it's absolutely destructive. I mean, look around us. How many wars have been started because humans worship power? How many lives have been destroyed because humans worship sex? How many lives have been destroyed, completely wrecked because humans worship money? We could add to the list. What else do we worship? We can worship just about anything. And many of us have gone down the list. We've worshiped so many things over the course of our lives. We've wasted years worshiping all sorts of things. Worshiped ourselves put ourselves in the center of our little universe and live to serve ourselves, to acknowledge our glory, to be awed by us. Every sin and every injustice that we see all around us is rooted in worship gone wrong. So think of it this way. Whether it's racism, whether, whether it's... Um, uh, S- sex trafficking wh- whether it's on demand uh, abortion whether it's sexual abuse or abuse of any kind whether it political corruption All of it, it all comes from this. It comes from hearts that are worshiping something other than God. Imagine what this world would look like if the billions of people all over this planet worship God. Exclusively. It would be a world completely, completely void of all of these injustices I've just listed. In fact, there's, here, here's the essence of sin according to Romans 1. In Romans 1.25, it says humanity exchanged the truth about God for a lie and, listen, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, we decided that things made by God are more valuable than God himself. And that's the fundamental tragedy of human history. But 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 it's not just a humanity problem in general, it's a personal problem for us, for you and for me. And I believe that God is pressing in on that in our lives. I, I think that God's been alerting us to this problem for the past few weeks now at least. Because two weeks ago in John 3, we, we were pushed to ask this question, what's at the center of your life? And then last week, the, the first part of this conversation in John 4, it pushed us to ask, how are you trying to quench your spiritual thirst? And really, those two are just two variations on the same question. And another way for us to ask that same question is to put it this way, what do you worship? What do you worship? What's at the center of your life? What do you look to to quench the deep cravings and thirst of your soul? What do you worship? It's all the same question, just from slightly different angles. God is coming back to these questions for us again and again. He wants us to stay here for a little while and think longer than we usually do about what it is we worship. And this is what God does out of love for us. God sees what our hearts are focused on. He sees what our hearts are treasuring and worshiping. And and, and what he does is he comes and he reveals it to us. Christ does this again and again in the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, you'll see this. When he's interacting with people, for instance, when he's interacting with the Pharisees, those religious officials, no matter what they ask him, no matter what they talk to him about, what does he do in response? He reveals their hypocrisy. He, he shows them and he shows others that these people worshipped status. The opinions of others. They were phony. Phony. Later on, some of you know this story in, in, in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is talking to this rich young man. And, and, and what he does in this conversation very quickly is he reveals to this young man his greed. He shows him how, how he worships money. You see, Jesus again and again, he goes right for that area where the person in deepest need, most deeply needs forgiveness, forgiveness. He goes right to that area where the person needs restoration and change. Jesus is very intrusive like that. But his goal is not to shame. It's to rescue. And we know this because Luke 19 tells us that Jesus came with this mission. He came to seek and save the lost. He knows that worshiping the wrong thing will kill you. He knows that only God is worthy of worship. So, so Jesus' his love for people and His love for God the Father, they compel him to boldly show people again and again where their worship is misdirected. Here's a question. For you to consider, how do you respond when Jesus begins to reveal your heart to you? When he starts to reveal the sin, the misdirected worship, for instance, of your own heart. The the people in the Gospels that he talks to, they respond in a variety of different ways. The Pharisees, those religious leaders, for instance, commonly the way they respond is they hate Jesus because Jesus is revealing their sin. They grow more and more bitter towards him and eventually they want him dead. That that rich young man that Jesus revealed his greed, that young man, he walked away from Jesus. It says he walked away sad. He didn't hate Jesus. He walked away sad, though. And what he did is he continued to cling to that thing that he worshipped. This Samaritan woman, she responds differently. At first, she kind of evades. She switches the subject. But Jesus persists, and eventually she receives what Jesus says to her beautifully, and it transforms her. How about you? How do you respond when Jesus begins to reveal the misdirected worship of your heart, when he starts to show you the sin in there? Does your inner lawyer engage, start defending rationalizing justifying yourself does your does your inner lawyer start to help you compare yourself to others so you start to feel a little bit better listen new hope if we know anything about jesus we know that he approaches us not to shame but to rescue he does so in love so this means that when our savior begins to uncover those areas in our life where we need forgiveness and where we need restoration, let's not run from it, and let's not squirm out of it. Let's welcome it. It's painful. It's awkward. These moments that that this woman spent with Jesus initially were painful and awkward, and yet they end beautifully. Let's thank God that he doesn't stop at just revealing our sin. He doesn't just uncover it. He he brings a remedy. He does that for this woman. He shows this woman that regardless of her messy past and regardless of her people's messy history, he shows her that by believing in him, she can become a worshiper of the true God. And that takes us to the second point. Jesus makes us Worshippers of the true God. Look at verse 20. This is the woman speaking to Jesus. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And again, he's saying, you Jews, you Jewish people believe that. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father But but they're vital for us. So so let's look at just uh, some parts of it. In verse 21, Jesus says, the hour is coming. That, That phrase is key. He repeats it in verse 23. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here. Here's why that matters, okay? In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this phrase, the hour is coming or the hour hour has come. He uses that phrase again and again and again. And listen, every time he uses it, he's talking about the hour, the time of his crucifixion. He's talking about that time that in one sense, it's still coming, it's still ahead. But in another sense, it's basically almost here. He's just a couple of years away from his death. The hour is the hour of his crucifixion. And what Jesus is saying here is that a time is coming when I will be crucified. And what happens on that cross will change worship forever. It's not going to matter anymore whether you worship in the temple in Jerusalem or whether you worship on on the temple on this mountain here in Mount Gerizim. Salvation isn't found in either one of those places anyway. Salvation is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see what he's doing? He's taking the focus off these places. He's saying that old debate between the Jews and the Samaritans, it's it's, it's obsolete. He's locking all the focus on himself. Saying worship is all about me. This, This should remind us of something. It should remind us... Of what he did back in John 2, when Jesus stands in the middle of the temple, in the, the temple court in Jerusalem, and, and he basically declares, This building that I'm standing in, this glorious temple, this is temporary. I am the true temple. He basically communicates to me, I am the true temple, and real worship, true worship of the real God, can only happen by coming to me. The way you meet the Father is by coming to me. Eventually, when this hour would arrive, Jesus would bleed out and die on a cross, and he would be buried. And he would rise on the third day, just as he had predicted he would, many times. And because of his death and because of his resurrection, anyone who believes in him will be made a true worshiper of the true and living God. And that true worshiper does not need to go to Jerusalem or to Samaria or here for that matter or any other geographical location to worship God. It's not about location anymore. It's about connection to relationship to Jesus Christ. What Jesus says here tells us that worship is, it's at least two things. It's it's exclusive and it's inclusive. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, there's only one way to worship God, and it's by coming to Jesus Christ. That is exclusive. Jesus says there's no other way to worship the real God other than through faith in Jesus Christ. That means that all other schemes and and, and attempts to get at God by some other way simply don't work. It's exclusive. But this way to worship God through Jesus, it's open to everyone. So you see, it's inclusive as well. It's inclusive of everyone who is willing to come to Jesus and believe in him. In verse 22, Jesus says, salvation is from the Jews. That that, that means the the savior of the world came from the Jewish people. But salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for anyone who believe in Christ. It's for outcasts and the impure. It's for adulterers and, and folks with messy, sinful pasts. Like this woman. But it's also for the accomplished and the successful and the respected It's for anyone who will leave their sin and believe. Those are the kinds of people whom the Father seeks and receives to worship him. Jesus uses another phrase here twice that's important for us to look at. In verse 23, he says, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit And truth, spirit and truth, right? And then again in verse 24, he says, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? This phrase has been explained in many, many different ways. Some more helpful and satisfactory than others. I think the explanation is rather simple, actually. What Jesus is communicating to us here is that true worship of God is impossible without the spirit and without the truth. And both the spirit and the truth come to us through Jesus Christ. We have access to the spirit of God and we have access to the truth through Jesus Christ. And the reason I believe that is because when you see these words, spirit and truth show up throughout the gospel of John, again and again and again, both words, spirit, truth, they're both connected back to Jesus over and over. I'll just give you like like a a sampling, right? I'm just going to read through these quickly. In John 1, it says that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In John 7, it says those who believe in Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit. In John 15, it says Jesus is the one who will actually send the Spirit. And then John 20, it says, amazing scene jesus breathes on his disciples and he says to them receive the holy spirit you see we don't get the spirit apart from jesus and we can't worship without the spirit not really worship and how about truth truth is also connected to jesus over and over again in john 1 it says that jesus is full of truth And and it tells us also that it goes on to tell us that truth comes from Jesus Christ. And and then in John 8, it tells us that he says, if you abide in me, you will know the truth. And then later on in in chapter 14, he says, I am the truth. See, Jesus gives us truth. If we abide in him, we receive truth. He's full of truth. He is the truth. So you see how believing in Jesus makes you a worshiper of the the true God? He gives you the Holy Spirit of God. He reveals to you the truth about who God is. So that if you've believed in Jesus, you now have his spirit living inside you. And you have received revelation. The truth of who God is has been revealed to you So now, now you can respond to God the way you always were meant to. Now you can know him for who he is. You are now equipped to recognize him to be better and more awe-inspiring than anyone and anything else. Because you have the Spirit and because you've been given the truth, now you're able to recognize Him to be supremely good and worthy of your love. In other words, you have been restored to the very purpose for which you were created, to worship God. And it feels good to do what you were made for. But if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, then worship of the true God is impossible according to Christ without his spirit and without his truth revealed to you, you're you're going to continue to worship yourself and a number of other things and people. It's no wonder that Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So so the the invitation, the, the imperative that comes out of this is obvious. Come to Jesus and believe. Receive his gift, his gift of the spirit, his gift of the truth. And as you receive, be restored to the purpose for which you were designed worshipping the wrong things is killing you and Jesus came to rescue you from all of that we've been talking a lot about worship and i want to end with some simple basic kind of application that that hopefully brings all this to the ground These statements may seem kind of obvious, so I'm going to throw them out there. The first one is this. Worship is more than singing. Again, maybe that's obvious. But so often, I think, especially if you've grown up around churches and you've been Christian for a long time, we use worship to mean singing in the church often. And there's nothing wrong with using worship to talk about singing because singing is an important aspect of worship. But the Bible doesn't use worship exclusively to talk about singing. This whole gathering is for the purpose of worship. All of it. What we're doing right now, both what I'm doing and what you're doing, if you're listening, this is worship. When someone prays for an offering, even the announcements that are shared, this is worshipful. This is us engaging in family life together before God, In his presence, and with each step, what we want to do, what we aim for in these worship services, what we aim for is to do everything with an awareness, a recognizing of who God is and what he has done for us. We want everything we do here to be a response to him. We should view it that way. But, second, worship is more than an event a way of living worship is not just an event we use it that way right like are you going to worship i went to worship it's fine that's fine but it's more than that worship is offering up yourself to god to, to praise and to serve him what worship is a is a whole life response to god for what he has done for you through the death and resurrection of jesus And it's also a response to God for who he is, for his perfection. Sure, we do engage in events centered around worship, like these Sunday gatherings. We gather to worship. I I hope you worship God alone as well at certain times during your day. If you live with your family, I hope you worship God with your families too, too at certain times, but beyond that, worship is not just those isolated events. Worship is a posture of your heart that says, all I do, ultimately, I do for the God who rescued and adopted me as his own. Lastly, worship is more than an experience. So it's more than singing. It's more than an event. It's more than an experience. And the reason I say this is because worship does involve experience, obviously, but it's more than experience. When we think in terms of experience, at least my mind, it goes to me. So when I think about experiences, I focus on myself. Like, um, how was your dining experience? How did you enjoy that restaurant, right? How was your um, shopping experience? How were you treated by the people? it's kind of like, how, what did you get out of this? How were you served? How did you enjoy it? Now, certainly, during the worship of God, we are served. And I hope we do enjoy it. And yet, and yet, I don't think that's meant to be the primary focus. Also, when I think experience, I think passive. Like, I'm going to passively experience something. Things are going to be done. I'm going to be the recipient of those things. I'm going to experience them. Now, certainly an aspect of worship involves that. There's no doubt. We are the receivers of God's grace. We are the receivers of God's word. We are the receivers of his spirit. There's no doubt. And yet, I don't think that's all there is to it. Worship is active. It calls upon us to engage our whole selves, mind, body, and soul. It's not passive. Think about what we read earlier from from Psalm 29. It says, ascribe to the Lord glory. Worship him in the splendor of his holiness. In order to do that, we need to exert energy. We need to engage our hearts and our minds. We can't sit passively and ascribe anything to God. We, We sang these words just a second ago. Come rejoice, my soul. What are we doing when we sing those words? We're talking to ourselves. We're saying, soul, come. Come rejoice. Get up and rejoice in the Lord. Don't don't just sit there disengaged. We sing sometimes the song, bless the Lord, oh my soul. What are we doing there? We're talking to ourselves again. As we stand there in those pews and we sing, we're saying, soul, you may not want to, You may not be feeling it. Bless the Lord. Give to him the glory he deserves. Observe him. Look at who he is, and you will want to give him the glory he deserves. Observe and respond to him. Observe his sovereignty and his compassion and his mercy. Observe his love as it's displayed in these gospel accounts that we're reading, as it's displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ, as his love and mercy and justice and all of that beautiful stuff that makes God who he is is displayed to us all throughout the pages of these scriptures. And we sing about it, and we pray about it, and we read about it. We're called to actively engage ourselves to respond with thanks and with praise, God calls us to worship in spirit and truth. And part of what that means is to take the breath that He has given us, as we sang earlier. It's His breath in our lungs. Use it. We use it for so many things. There's nothing that we can use it for that is better and more valuable than worshiping the one who gave us that breath. It's not just an experience. It's more than that. And as we engage ourselves, not just in going through the motions and trying to fake it till we make it, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is asking the Lord to move by his spirit to to empower us to believe and to worship, but also making that, at times, very difficult effort to worship. And the beautiful thing is that as we do that, the Lord meets us. And He begins to give us that joy. He begins to give us that experience that we crave the experience of His nearness. I want to close with this quote from a pastor named Scott Smith. He says, Though we love those times in gathered worship when God's presence seems so real, and so weighty and powerful. We love that. And yet, he says, it's a huge comfort to know that God is still powerfully at work through the ordinary means of grace, no matter what we're feeling. He's still working through what we do here and what you do personally when you try to worship God. He's at work whether you're feeling it or not. We want to feel it. We want to experience his nearness and the weight of his presence. There's no doubt. We want to experience in very real ways the freedom that comes from worshiping God. And yet we can know this, whether we're feeling it or not, his promise is true. If you have believed in Christ, you are a worshiper of the true God. We were all made to worship something. Will we worship the God who made us for himself? Will we worship him? Let's pray. Lord, you did not need us to worship you. And yet we get to worship you because you have chosen to to share the glory of who you are with us. You've chosen to, to share yourself with us so that we can experience and see and know the God who made us. Lord, our sins stood in the way, but you took care of that. Jesus, you took care of that powerfully when you died and you rose again on our behalf and you've sent your spirit into us. Lord, would you help us to cooperate, to to follow the spirit, to, to submit to him and worship you? In Jesus' name, amen.